Welcome to Fruit Snacks, a weekday podcast that covers big ideas about the Christian worldview in a bite-sized format. Hey everyone, welcome back. It is a very special day today. This is Fruit Snacks episode 100. So huge milestone for us. I just want to say thank you for listening. Thank you for being such a great encouragement and a support to us as we have taken on this endeavor and grown. It has been so much fun and we just continue to pray that God uses it to bless you and uh, anyone else that he brings to your mind to to share these with. So in today's episode, we're going to take a look at some of the more common objections to this doctrine of penal substitution, because there are some pretty significant objections that get raised, and we're going to discuss what parts of them maybe should be taken seriously, and also how to think about them in light of the I think, very obvious scriptural truth that Jesus really did die as our substitute. So the first objection is often framed in a pretty pejorative way because this idea that Jesus died in our place gets framed something along the lines of cosmic child abuse, basically saying, so God is so angry and so vindictive that he he had to torture his child to death so that he could be satisfied so that he could have a relationship with us. Doesn't that make God seem a little petty? Well, sure it does. If that is how you see God. And honestly, it's just such a, such a great departure from what scripture actually tells us that it just, to me, it's, it's a straw man. It's a caricature of what the Bible actually teaches. First of all, we should remember that even though this often gets called you know, cosmic child abuse, Jesus was not a child. Jesus was a full-grown man who willingly, according to the scriptures, of his own free will and desire gave up his life, even though he wasn't looking forward to the experience of, of doing so. Speaking of his willingness, we actually see this in Ephesians 5.2, that Jesus was not unwilling. So not only was he not a child, he was not unwilling. And when this gets framed in terms of cosmic child abuse, the implication is often that Jesus was not a willing participant in this, but we know that he was. And so we need to back up because this is an emotionally charged objection. And we need to take a a sober and a rational look at what exactly was true about Jesus's perspective and his mindset going into his death. And also, I would just point out that this charge completely neglects the judicial aspects of God's justice and why it is a good and right thing for God as just judge of all the earth to not allow sin to go unpunished. It treats and frames Jesus' death as if the only issue is an interpersonal issue between us and God, and God should just be able to forgive. But like I said, it ignores completely the theology that God is also the judge of all the earth, and therefore to be righteous, he has to judge sin. 
Another objection that comes up is that someone else can't pay for someone else's sins. That's just not a thing. And to that, I think we would simply ask the question, based on what? Based on what would we be able to say that that's just not a thing? That's not possible. Because according to Scripture, not only can Jesus apparently pay for someone else's sins, but he did. That's exactly what Peter writes in in 1 Peter 3.18. And so while it's it's an objection that can get brought up, I simply find that there's really not a whole lot of argument or reasons to back up the claim. God has decided that Jesus can pay for someone else's sins, and so that's what that's what happened. Uh, a third objection would be why is Jesus's sacrifice finite, but hell is infinite for unbelievers? And the crux of this question stems from the fact that Jesus' death was only for roughly 36 hours, that he died on Friday afternoon, he was raised on Sunday morning, and he only suffered the penalty of death for sin for a finite, relatively short amount of time. But Christian doctrine would hold that if you're an unbeliever and you go to hell, you're there forever. So how does that work? Well, there are several things that we can say about this. First of all, that annihilationism, which is the idea that maybe hell isn't eternal, is always an option. Now, frankly, it's not an option that I find compelling, but there are Christian scholars out there who hold to annihilationism. And if that is the case, then honestly, the whole argument sort of falls apart because punishment for sin would also be finite for unbelievers. And so there's really isn't an incongruity there. But moving beyond something that's more uh, conjecture, I think we should consider that there is a fundamental difference between the quality of Jesus's sacrifice and that of our own lives. It's not really a quantity question. It's a quality question. If Jesus is perfectly sinless and deity, then the quality of his death and and his blood is altogether different than yours and mine. And so Jesus is infinitely more valuable as a sacrifice than any normal human person who is also a sinner and also not qualified to be a substitute. Finally, a question that we should ask is that while it might seem unfair to think that punishment for a finite amount of sin could go on forever, we should consider that perhaps those who are in hell never stop sinning. If hell is a place where everyone is removed from the goodness and the presence of God and they are not redeemed or sanctified in their character at all, but they remain who they were in this life, we can point to a parable like the rich man and Lazarus to justify a claim like that. The rich man continued to be selfish, continued to look down on Lazarus as beneath him, continued to treat others as inferior, and continued to sin, even in hell. And if that's the case, then punishment for sin going on infinitely isn't for a finite amount of sin, but people will continue to sin infinitely. 
Finally, one more objection. Isn't it unjust to punish someone who is innocent? Jesus was truly innocent. Well, again, Jesus offered himself willingly, which is something we should not overlook. Second, there is in our own courts civil and criminal precedent for something called vicarious liability, which is this idea that a innocent party can be held responsible for the actions of someone guilty. For instance, an employer or a company can be held liable, criminally or civilly liable, for the actions of a subordinate or an employee. And finally, God isn't just punishing someone. God is punishing Jesus. And that's a clear distinction which goes back to our other objection about the quality of Jesus's sacrifice compared to anyone else. So it really does all come back to Jesus being altogether different and Jesus being uniquely qualified to be our sacrifice. There's a lot about penal substitution that doesn't feel good, but perhaps that's the point. Perhaps that's part of what drives us to be so thankful and grateful to Jesus for what he did on our behalf.